The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To look at the question, what is acceptable worship? Because that is what we're commanded to give in Hebrews 12. Worship that is acceptable. And the one who determines that is God. And what we've come to now is... How do we order our worship? We're talking specifically about public worship or corporate gathering. How do we order that? And as we go along here, we need to keep this in mind. The Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is not to be read that way, where it's meet at 1030. First, start with this, then go to this. It's not the way our Bibles were ever meant to be read. Rather, what we do, while there are explicit commands, there's also other ways the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us through example. We see examples of how God's people worshipped throughout Scripture. Also, we consider the nature of things. Well, what is worship? What happens when we come here? Well, what happens is we are meeting with God. We see that throughout Scripture. It is a meeting with God. It's the congregation coming into the special presence of God where he draws near to us. And what happens when people come into the presence of God? Well, they recognize their sin. And they confess it. And that's what we saw last week. And so what we saw last week is first, uh, there's there's a call to worship. God calls us into his presence. That's the king extending his scepter saying, come into my presence. It's a divine call. And this is one of the reasons why, just even as a practical application, I can kind of be busy doing all this stuff, and 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 I try to make it in on time, which I which I which I didn't this morning. But trying to show due respect to the king, the king is called. Do I believe that? Well, I want to be here. I want to be ready, and I want to participate in the whole worship service, not just get here in time for the sermon, but even for the call to worship as as God has called us, as that's the start now of our sacred worship. And then we saw from the Psalms that we enter His gates, how? With praise, with, with thanksgiving. So we start with a song of adoration. But as we saw also, as I just mentioned, what happens when people come into the presence of the majesty on high and the law is read? Do they say, yep, Check, I'm a good Christian. No, they say, as Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And we left it off last week there. And we're going to pick up with two more elements, which is an assurance of pardon and confession of our faith. So first with the assurance of pardon... I want you to think for the, uh, for a moment, the last time you sinned against somebody. I know a lot of times we could think about all the sins done against us. We can come up with that right away. But me sinning against someone? Ah, man, I can't remember a time I've sinned against somebody. I know we tend not to focus on how we've sinned against others. But think about the last time you sinned against somebody and you knew that you were in the wrong. Say you said something rude to your spouse, something mean, or to a friend or a sibling, and you know you had to go and you had to confess your sin to that person. You had to go apologize to that person. You were convinced that you needed to do it. 
I know oftentimes we, we, we find excuses. Well, if that person just wasn't the way they are, I wouldn't have acted that way. It's all their fault. We tend to blame shift. Uh, we tend to ignore our sin. We tend to downplay it. We tend to say, look at all those Christians out there. They're, they're not genuine like me, of course. Oh, that's, I know that's our tendency. But let's say the Spirit actually gives you enough humility and conviction where you say, I need to go to that person and I need to seek their forgiveness. So you go to that person, you seek their forgiveness, you ask for their forgiveness, say it's a spouse, and that person doesn't respond at all, neither negative or positive. Say, would you please forgive me? And they don't say anything to you. What would you do then? You would probably follow up with the question, did you hear me? And that person says, yeah, I heard you. And then you would say, well, do you forgive me? And what if that person said, why does it matter if I tell you? What would you think about that? You see, even in our natural in our relationships, our human relationships, there's a, there's a natural desire to want to be assured of forgiveness, that the relationship is, is restored. And thankfully, that's the way God is towards us. When we confess our sins, He doesn't leave us hanging. Rather, He gives us an assurance of pardon. And we actually see that in Scripture. Turn over again to Isaiah 6. We were there last week. Let's turn there once again to Isaiah chapter 6 and that very well-known vision that Isaiah had in the temple. Remember again, uh, this is Isaiah in the temple. And what's the significance about Isaiah being in the temple here? Well, that means he's in the presence of God. He's in the presence of God in the heavenly worship. Angels worshiping God. So this is the special presence of God that Isaiah is in. And Isaiah immediately confesses his sin. And God didn't say, okay, now confess your sin. Okay, I suppose. I really don't like to, but I'll do it anyway. No, he, was, he didn't have to be commanded or coerced into it. He just did it. Woe is me. I'm undone. And to say, woe is me, is not to say, you know, woe is me, I'm so sad. It's to say, I, I should be destroyed and annihilated by the presence of God. I stand condemned before Him. And if God, in His righteous judgment, executed it against me, I would rightly be eternally destroyed. That's what He's saying there. I am a man of unclean lips. The holy prophet who declared the word of God out of all people who, did, who should not have unclean lips, he recognized he did. And how does God respond to this? We'll look down at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in my hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So this is a unique theophany. Theophany just means a visible manifestation of God. So this is not really God. This is God manifesting himself. And in this, one of the angels takes a coal from the altar and what's significant about that? 
Well, the altar is the place where the sacrifice was offered up. The sacrifice for sin. Where the sacrifice is made to go up and smoke to the Lord, to ascend to the Lord. That, that's where sin is dealt with in the Old Covenant system. And so to take a coal from this altar where sins are dealt with and apply it to Isaiah is to say that that sacrifice for sin has been applied to you. And he applies it to the very spot where Isaiah most felt his sin. Now again, this is a theophany, so it's not like there is actual coal that burned his lips. Okay? But what this is showing is in this vision that sin that the sacrifice for sin has been applied to Isaiah. And then this angel declares to him, your sin is atoned for. Now this angel does not have authority to forgive sin. Only God alone forgives sin. But God uses an appointed messenger to give Isaiah assurance of pardon, verbally, out loud, your sin has been atone for. So God doesn't just say, yeah, you've confessed your sin, move on. Rather, God makes sure to give him an assurance of pardon to acquit his guilty conscience in his presence. And then, what's the result of that? God says, who shall go for us? And what does Isaiah do? Here I am, send me. You see, having assurance of forgiveness, having assurance of pardon, knowing that you are forgiven, then motivates us and prepares us to go out and serve the Lord. I cannot tell you, well, I, I can, but I think it's hard for us to grasp just how much a guilty conscience weighs us down. And we do one of two things with the guilty conscience. Uh, one, uh, we just despair. It's like, I don't want to go out and suffer for the Lord if I'm despairing, if I don't really know that he's on my side. Or two, we're very proud. That's typically the response. Oh, look at those Christians over there. They're not like me. If only they would. And we, we try to find fault with others in order to justify ourselves and acquit our conscience. And that is, that's an ungodly way to live. What resolves that is having our conscience clear. And God does that through an assurance of pardon by an appointed messenger to verbalize that in his presence. That's what we see here in Isaiah 6. And we see that in other places in Scripture. Turn over to Leviticus, the, the third book of the Bible. Leviticus. In Leviticus, uh, we see the sacrificial system in place where public worship occurred. Okay, So the tabernacle. And from our study in Leviticus, if you remember, there are five sacrifices, five main sacrifices for sin, and at least two of them involved public confession of sin. The, the burnt offering from chapter 1 and the sin offering from chapter 4. The offerer took that sacrifice in the presence of all, laid his hands on that sacrifice, and then confessed his sin. Before the priest. And it wasn't in a private setting. It wasn't a private screen. It was public. Everyone knew what you were doing when you were bringing a sacrifice for sin. That you had sin. 
and then confessing that out loud. So this is in a public setting. And even the Day of Atonement was the same thing. The priest would lay his hands and confess the, uh, the sins of Israel over it. Uh, again, publicly. Confession of sin was a regular part of public worship. But with this, God gives an assurance of pardon. I want you to notice uh, chapter 4. Starting in chapter 4, I want you to notice how often God says this. So chapter 4, verse 20. And they shall be forgiven. Verse 26. And he shall be forgiven. Verse 31, and he shall be forgiven. Verse 35, and he shall be forgiven. Then chapter 5, verse 10, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Verse 13, and he shall be forgiven. Verse 16, and he shall be forgiven. Verse 18, and he shall be forgiven. And then chapter 6, verse 7, with, with the reparation offering for the the serious violation of swearing falsely, and he shall be forgiven. God doesn't just say he needs to do this when he sins, and that's the end of it. Rather, God makes sure to add at the end an assurance of pardon, and he shall be forgiven. And then we see God give this assurance of pardon in the public worship. Turn over to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the first official worship service, if you will, at this newly constructed tabernacle. In Exodus, we saw the instructions and construction for this tabernacle. And Leviticus really is just a continuation of Exodus. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, right after Exodus, gives the instructions for worship, for sacrifices. And then in chapter 8, the priests are ordained. And now everything is set and ready. And so in chapter 9, we have the first official worship service in the tabernacle. And in verses 15 through 21, Aaron offers up the uh, four of the five required sacrifices. All except for the guilt or reparation offering because that uh, involves having committed a particular sin. But they have sinned in generally and so the other four sacrifices were offered. And with at least two of these sacrifices, there would be a confession of sin, a public confession of sin. And then after the sacrifice were offered, we read in verse 23 this. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. So we should not gloss over this detail. We need to understand its significance. After they, they sacrificed, God has them do this seemingly strange thing where they, they enter into the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, and then they come out again and they bless the people. And that has significance. God has them do that for a reason. Remember, at the end of Exodus, when the tabernacle was fully constructed and God's presence filled it, it says that Moses was not able to enter. Moses, who was able to enter that cloud up on the mountain, and he alone, he was not able to enter the tabernacle. That's significant. But then after the sacrifice is offered, Moses is able to enter with Aaron. The way into God's presence is through a sacrifice offered by a high priest. But God shows visibly that the sacrifice for their sin is accepted on their behalf 
by having Moses, who was not able to enter, enter and come out alive, unscathed, and then bless the people. God has them do that to give them assurance that the sacrifice for their sin was accepted. To give assurance of pardon. Now, under the new covenant, we no longer offer sacrifices or have priests that, that do that for us. But are we still sinners? Yes. Do we still get afflicted with a guilty conscience? Yes. Do we still confess our sin? Yeah, First John says we are to do that. And God still responds with an assurance of pardon. And this is part of God's character. Part of his kindness to give an assurance of pardon. It flows out of his nature because he knows our conscience needs it. We see God's character in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to reference these really briefly. You don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 9, a paralytic is brought to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus says to him this, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus verbalizes this to this man. Jesus verbalizes to forgiven people that indeed they are forgiven. And in Luke 7, a sinful woman, a sexually immoral prostitute, crashed the Pharisees' dinner party for Jesus. But she comes in and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And the Pharisees disapproved because of how sinful she was. You know, she's a sinner unlike us. She does not have her act together. She needs to learn to shape up and be righteous like us. You know, look at what we're doing. We're, we got everything so right. We had Jesus over. And Jesus says, actually, you haven't loved me. Jesus vindicates her and shows that she loved much because she had been forgiven much. She loved much because she had been forgiven much. Knowing the forgiveness you have in Christ leads to loving Him much. And He makes sure to communicate this truth to her. Even though He says, her sins, which are many, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat that, yet He says to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus verbalized this to those who have sinned, but who are forgiven. That's part of the nature of God. And we see that this is what he communicates to his gathered disciples on the first day of the week. Turn over to John chapter 20 to see this. John chapter 20. I've referenced this before. John is very careful to tell us that Jesus met with his disciples on the first day of the week. And he only meets with them on the first day of the week uh, after his resurrection. It's a new pattern he's established to meet with his gathered disciples on the first day of the week. Because that's what we do now. And the fact that Jesus did not appear to Thomas... Until the first day of the week, he didn't give him a private showing, so to speak, is significant. Jesus now meets with his gathered disciples on the first day of the week. And we see what this, this first meeting was like in verses 19 through 21. 
where he says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus greets them with his peace. He dismisses them with his peace. And in between, he shows them his wounded body, which was given for their sins. There's a lot of focus on assurance here. You have my peace, and the basis for that peace is my wounded body. That was the focus of this meeting with his gathered disciples on the first day of the week. This assurance is emphasized. And then Thomas's doubts. And really, I think doubt is too weak of a word. It really should be his determined, hardened disbelief. Determined disbelief. I will never believe unless my terms are met so that I can put my hand in his side and put my fingers in his nail-pierced hands. Well, Jesus actually grants that unreasonable request. But He does it on the first day of the week when they're gathered again. And He says, Here, here Thomas, come, see. And again, greets them with peace and dismisses them with His peace. Our God is a God who wants His people to have assurance. Even when we struggle with, with even hardened unbelief. And this assurance of pardon and peace uh, really led to the same pattern with Isaiah. To, to send them out on His behalf. Now, does God give assurance of pardon only one time at the beginning of the Christian life and say, now you're good? Well, we remember what the, that, that father who wanted his child healed, he said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and my belief is perfect, right? No, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You can believe and still have unbelief because our faith is not perfect. In fact, the more you go along in the Christian life, the more you're going to realize that, that your faith is weak. And our gracious God does help us with that because He desires us to have assurance. As Hebrews 6 says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we need to be earnest to have not just assurance, but the Full assurance. Our gas tank, if you will, shouldn't be at half full. It should be full. It shouldn't be on empty. It should be full. There, there, we could put more gas in the tank as it were. Something that, that Hebrews had not yet obtained that God wanted them to in the scene with us. And how important is this? Well, he says that having assurance leads to not being sluggish but able to press on. Oh, if I know that my God is with me, that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ, 
that my sins are forgiven because that is what that that is the thing that that puts a hindrance between us and God. Like, why would God love me? Look at how sinful I am. Am I really in His good graces? I I need to perform better. I need to try harder. God, just be patient with me. I'll get it together someday, and then maybe you will accept me. No, that's not the way it is. Rather, God says, your sins are forgiven. And that assurance then leads us to not be sluggish, but to persevere, to press on. That is the motivation for obedience. It's not the other way around. It's not obey and then you are forgiven, but because you are forgiven, you can now obey. But if we don't believe this, then we will be weighed down. So since assurance is so important, how does Christ help us disciples today? We saw Christ verbalize that while He was on earth. Well, how does He help us, the same forgiven disciples today? We have seen that God does desire us to have assurance. And we see that He makes it a point to verbalize it to those who are forgiven. And He does it in the context of His special presence. The Old Testament, the priests going in and coming out of the holy places, even on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus declaring His peace to His disciples. Showing His wounded body on the first day of the week when they're gathered together. That's when He gave this assurance. And so the practice of the church has been to verbalize an assurance of pardon for all who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And since worship is a structured dialogue between us and God, when His law is read, as we saw in previous sermons, people respond by confessing their sins. But there's a dialogue. God doesn't leave us hanging. God responds on the basis of the new covenant. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart. Go in peace, my child. Your sins are forgiven. That's the heart of our God coming out in the worship service, verbalized through an appointed messenger who doesn't have authority to forgive sins, but is appointed to declare the Word of God and declares from the Word of God, if you have trusted Christ, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And this makes sense in light of the covenant we're under. The new covenant. Under the old covenant, it was read the law, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. The blood is now on you. If you don't fulfill this, the blood's on you. The punishment lies on you. But in the new covenant, Christ took that punishment for us. Christ was born under the law and fulfilled the law for us. He provides all the righteousness we need to stand before God, holy and blameless and above reproach. And Christ's blood was shed. He became liable for our sin. He was punished. And so when we confess our sin as members of the new covenant, God responds not with, you better do all that I say or else, but rather, Take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. And he does it through the appointed minister. 
based firmly on the authority of the Word of God in the New Covenant as Christ is in the midst of the congregation speaking to us. And the church has authority by Christ to declare forgiveness. Uh, You're still in John 20. Look down at verse 23. It says there, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Scripture declares elsewhere, who can forgive sins except for God alone, right? Yet we see here from the mouth of Jesus Himself, if you, plural, the you there is plural in the Greek, so if you, church, forgive sins, they are forgiven. If you forgive, that's the way it is. If you forgive any their sins, they are forgiven. That's the way it is. It's, it's recognized as reality in heaven. If you, the church, withhold forgiveness, then it is withheld. That's the way it is. What is this about? Well, this is Christ exercising His authority on earth through His church. Whatever, whatever we bind on earth has been bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. There's a real authority there. As long as His Word's being followed. But the decision of the church mirrors the decision of heaven because Christ is exercising His authority through His church. Now this is not an individual believer choosing whether or not He's going to forgive another. Jesus warns against that. Jesus says if you don't forgive from the heart, it demonstrates you haven't been forgiven. You have, that's why you don't have a heart to forgive. Uh, Each individual believer must forgive from the heart. But this is talking about the church's authority to bind and loose on heaven. To declare where there is forgiveness. And to declare where it is withheld. Through excommunication. But notice the church does both. Declare forgiveness and declare where it is withheld. And this isn't arbitrary. We don't like you. You're not forgiven. But this is based on following His Word. If, as we heard in Sunday school and church discipline, where somebody refuses to repent, then the church declares that person is not forgiven and really was never forgiven. It just reveals where that person truly is. But the church can declare both, including declaring to those who have trusted in Christ, your sins are forgiven. In fact, The reformers believed this was part of exercising the keys of the kingdom and having assurance of pardon in the worship service. It used to be just a normal part of of reformed worship. And so it makes sense that we would declare from God's word to those with a heavy conscience, with a tender conscience, your sins are forgiven. Take heart based on the word of God. And this gives us great confidence to confess our faith, which is the second element. And that is confessing the faith. Hebrews 4.14 and Hebrews 10.23, I'm not going to have you turn there, but Hebrews 4.14 and 10.23 command us to hold fast our confession of faith. It's interesting how the author here describes it. He doesn't say, hold fast our faith. 
Rather, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Confession is simply speaking out loud what you believe. That's all that is. The Apostle Paul inseparably ties the two together. If you believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Faith and confession go hand in hand. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Belief leads to speaking, leads to confession, to declaring what you believe. Christians are a confessing people as much as they are a believing people. We so often use the term believer, and we, we live in an age where religion is very private. You'll notice people say that, oh, that's very private to me. Or the, the, the mantra in our day, that's between me and the Lord. That publicly confessing our faith together seems so odd to us, especially if we've grown up in a certain tradition. But Scripture says here in Hebrews, our confession, not your confession, our confession. It's common. The faith is confessed. It is a confession. And it was commonly shared. It is our confession. The church from its very beginning had a common confession that they confessed together with one voice. As we saw last week from Nehemiah, when we gather together for worship, we come together as one man and we speak with one voice. Romans 15 says we glorify God with one voice. So just as when we sing, it's not just this individual over here singing one song, this individual over here singing another song. We're all singing the same words together. Because we come together as one man, so we speak with one voice. One man has one voice. And that's what we do when we come together and worship. And so just as the church sings the same words together in worship, so they confess the same words together without musical notes. Having musical notes does not suddenly make it sanctified or prevent dead orthodoxy. Speaking the same words together is what we do when we come together as a church. If we have a faith, and that faith is to be confessed, and it's our confession, and we come together as one voice, why would we say, no, we shouldn't confess our faith together? That, that's harmful. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then we see in Scripture, this is what we are to do. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Again, we're seeing this by example. The Bible is not an instruction manual. There's inferences we draw, things that the Bible assumes are taking place and therefore are instructive to us. So 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3.14-15 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth, or buttress of the truth. So here we see Paul telling Timothy why he's writing to him. It's so that he may know and instruct uh, the church how they are to conduct themselves as a church. 
And then Paul gives his identity to the church at the end of verse 15. It is the pillar or buttress or support of the truth. The church is the place, the only place, where the truth is upheld. Where the truth is defended and where the truth is declared. And then Paul goes on to springboard from this to the confession of the church as the pillar and support of the truth in verse 16. He says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the word translated as confess here is actually an adverb. Now remember the days of Schoolhouse Rock. And I'm probably dating myself by saying that. The longer I live, the more I I, I say that. I'm dating myself. I'm getting old. Of course, some of you are rolling your eyes like, yeah, you're still just a young buck. But Schoolhouse Rock. Kids, if you have not heard that, you you got to get on YouTube or, or whatever, and you got to watch that. Those are those are the days. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? Just just great. I, I just sang a private song, and it's it was Schoolhouse Rock. But adverb. So what is an adverb? That's what this is here. This word confess. Well, adverb is something that modifies a verb or adds to a verb. So, for example, he ran quickly. She cried loudly. That's an adverb. So, more wouldn't uh, to the Greek, what this says is confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. Or to, to put it another way, to bring out this idea here, this is worthy of a confession. This is worthy to be confessed. The way the NAS translates this is by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. What this would be saying is that this indeed is worthy to be confessed, confessed by all as our confession, commonly confessed together with one voice. And then in the Greek, it is clear that what Paul goes on to articulate is an early church creed. And the reason for that is because first century Greek letters were metered like our songs are. And not to a tune of a musical note, but in light of a professional reader reading it. And so they're metered. It has a certain rhythm. A duck, a duck, a duck. And it's clear from the meter here in the Greek that what's in verse 16 changes. That it demonstrates its own form or meter. And that's why in a lot of your Bibles this is reflected by uh, this verse being indented as its own paragraph or standing alone indicating that this is quoting something that's already established. And scholars uh, uh, pr- pretty much agree that this is an early church creed. It's A creed is simply us confessing what we believe in summary form. There are some things, Paul says, that are worthy of a confession. Some things worthy to be commonly confessed by the church. And that implies that the church actually confesses something commonly. And that, Paul's mind, goes from the church being the pillar and support of the truth to this creed, this common confession, demonstrates one of the main ways that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. When one voice coming together, declaring these things. Think about how powerful that is. It's one thing for one person to say, here's my subjective experience uh, and testimony 
of how I came to the Lord. It's another thing for one voice across the world and across timelines, historically, confessing the same words. I believe. What strength that gives in defending the faith in supporting it. Because we believe together with one voice, we declare from a heart of true conviction, I believe the same faith that has been articulated with one voice confessed for centuries. The saints of old have confessed these words of our creeds and the saints after us will confess the same words. And around the world, even now, these words are being confessed. We teach them to our children as we confess them together with one voice. Sometimes I'm delighted to hear my children in Prop 2 saying these words of the Apostles' Creed, which we confess in the, uh, the afternoon service. What more glorious words can be spoken or uttered on earth than Christ came down from heaven, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, but on the third day He rose again. These are the things that ultimately matter. These, out of everything else you will ever say in your life, this is what matters. That faith, once and for all, handed down to the saints. I have a good pastor friend. He recently lost his father, who is a believer. And his father was uh, like a pillar to him. Taught him the faith. Taught him many things in life. And he told me that his father's death, despite his father being a believer, hit him harder than he expected. And in seeking to encourage him, how do you encourage somebody like that? I mean, you have to allow them to go through grief. You can't tell them, don't worry, be happy. It's okay for them to grieve. But how do you encourage them? I encouraged him with the words that both of our churches confess. And that is, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. What hope do we have in the face of death or a loved one dying? I believe in the resurrection of the dead. You're going to see your Father again in the life of the world to come. That is what we believe. That is what is precious. And when you're on your deathbed and you're about ready to meet the eternal God, and you're drawing your final breath, what is your hope going to be? Is it not, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, that Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day rose again? This is a faith worthy to be confessed with one voice from the heart. And it was these words that Christians had in mind when they were being led to public mocking to be burned at the stake. And this is the faith that will hold on to us as we hold on to it with our final breath. And we can confidently confess this faith because we are assured by Christ of this. Take heart.
your sins are forgiven. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to be faithful, to confess our faith, to be a confessing church as the pillar and support of the truth. We are so grateful that we have been handed this faith, that we have received the good deposit. Help us to be faithful from one generation to the next. Thank you for this wonderful faith. Thank you for Christ and Him crucified and for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for His loving and kind heart. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, let's now see His wounded body in the Lord's Supper. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.